Engaging Leader, episode 149, The Power of Beliefs in Business, featuring Ari Weinzweig from Zingerman's. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. I have a treat for you today. We're going to take a field trip to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to Zingerman's, the nationally renowned food icon where we'll be having coffee with Ari Weinzweig, one of the co-founding partners who's still actively involved in the day-to-day business of the Zingerman's business community. Zingerman's, if you aren't already aware of it, is uh, is uh, almost three decades old now, and it is uh, one of those, it's been called the coolest small business in America, and it's technically, I suppose, still a small business. It has about 750 employees, over $55 million in annual revenue, but it's known all over the country, and I have people uh, who I do business with that um, get things delivered to them, get get uh, baked goods and so forth delivered to them from Zingerman's. Or when they come into town to meet with me, they say, hey, let's make sure we go to Zingerman's. It's known all over the place for really good food, a really unique experience, and amazing customer service. And that is what inspired them to, uh, a long time ago, start up Zing Train, which is their training arm. Um, and inspired them to inspired Ari to write multiple books about business and leadership, and uh, it's just a surprising success story, given that their vision is to basically stay fairly small and stay uh, focused on the Ann Arbor, Michigan area. They're really not interested so far in creating a chain experience across the country. Instead, they have a reputation across the country and people come to them. So I'm really excited to go have coffee with Ari and hear what he has to say about his new book. And we're going to learn about how to identify the beliefs that are driving you and or your team, whether those are good or bad, and how to implement beliefs that drive the results you want. Ari Weinzweig, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. My pleasure. Well, we're sitting here in the in the coffee in Zingerman's coffee shop, having mm-hmm. a good time. And uh, I'm first of all curious about how you went from studying Russian history yeah. to building co-founding what's become a nationally renowned uh, business uh, community of businesses. Yeah. Well, was uh, <laughs> not something I ever imagined would happen. But uh, after I, I grew up in Chicago, came to Ann Arbor to go to school at U of M. Uh, after graduating with my history degree, having studied the anarchists and other interesting things, uh, I really had no clue what I wanted to do next. I mostly just knew I didn't want to go home, uh, <laughs> and I needed a job to make that viable. And while I was in school, I'd driven a cab part-time, which was not all that exciting. And uh, one of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor, and so I thought that, I don't know, sounded good. So I went in there and applied, and they told me they'd call me if some opened up, and they didn't call me, so I went back and reapplied, offered to bus tables, and they said they'd call me if some opened, and I waited two more weeks, and they still didn't call me. So I went back and offered to do anything, and they offered me a job washing dishes, which I didn't know, you know, you weren't really supposed to want to wash dishes, so I just, <laughs> I just took the job. And uh, thank you, Rochelle. And uh, uh, that's how I got started. So, I mean, I had no particular interest in food or business uh, whatsoever. Just needed needed to have something to make a living. And 
you know, I figured eventually I'd go back to school, which I never did, but uh, I really just got lucky. I mean, I, I stumbled into work that I really love. I mean, I, we're talking business today, but I actually love the food piece of it still, too, uh, and, uh, and into great people. So Paul Saginaw, who's been my partner and all this from the get-go, was the GM at that restaurant. Uh, Maggie Bayless, who's the managing partner at Zing Train, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was a cocktail waitress. And uh, Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners in our bakery, was a line cook. So we all were in there together, and we're shockingly now, uh, almost 40 years later, we still like each other and we're still working <laughs> together. So that's pretty cool. But, uh, but yeah, I... I you know, I had no culinary background or interest. I grew up on, you know, what's sort of the classic mid-20th century industrial diet, which I think some people are still eating, but crap macaroni and cheese <laughs> in the box, and this is Paul's fish sticks and Pop-Tarts and Tang. And, That's how I grew up. Yep, yep, all that good stuff. So I didn't know anything about food, and I, you know, the new book, as you know, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about is about beliefs, and in hindsight, I can say that I had pretty negative beliefs about business, Uh you know, I just sort of had the sense business did bad things to people, and I wasn't that interested. And it was really Paul who changed those beliefs pretty early on. His uh, dad was a dentist, but his grandfather uh, had a business in Detroit where he grew up that was very community-minded. And so he taught Paul, who taught me, that business is really neither good nor bad. It's just a tool, and it's more what you do with the tool, not the tool itself that's at issue. And so that switched my beliefs in hindsight to, to be more positive. And so anyway, I worked at that restaurant group for four years, prepping, line cooking, and then managing kitchens. And Paul left about halfway through that and opened uh, Monaghan Seafood Market here in Ann Arbor with Mike Monaghan. And uh, he and I stayed friends. And uh, fall of 81, uh, I'd been there almost four years, and I, I'd reached the point where uh, I'm sure many people listening have either been there or are there or, you know, know people who are there but it's that point where sort of things are you know not horrible I didn't hate it it wasn't terrible they're not bad people uh, but I just it was sort of less and less engaging inspiring whatever word you want to use and so November 181 uh, not knowing what I was going to do next I gave two months notice uh, Paul called me like two three days later and he said that there was this little building coming open near the fish market that we should go look at and uh, in Detroit, where he grew up, in Chicago, where I grew up, both of them had good deli food, but he couldn't get it here, and so that was one thing that we had talked about doing. And uh, four and a half months later, we opened the deli. So original space was 1,300 square feet, and it was just me and Paul and two employees. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know where we had, 25 sandwiches, 29 seats, some bread from other bakeries because we didn't have our own, some, uh, you know, corned beef, mustard, chopped liver, chicken soup. Smoke fish, all that good stuff, and that's how we got going. And it was about what ten years before you started basically attracting national recognition. Uh, yeah, if not before, I mean, I don't know. We, you know, things went more slowly in those days in terms of news traveling, I guess. But uh, like today, you could have national recognition right now if, <laughs> if I put your picture on Instagram. But, right. but. Uh, yeah, we started to get attention fairly early. By 10 years in, we'd already been in the New York Times and Bon Appetit. I don't remember the exact chronology, but, but yeah. Now, Inc. Magazine is called Zingerman's the coolest small company uh -huh. in America. What are some of the specifics that would make about how your, your business practices and your business model that have, have got, gotten those kind of comments? Well, 
I mean, you know, I never know why somebody else wrote something, but I, I guess what I would say is that, you know, whether you call it cool or, or some other version of that, but uh, the, the epilogue of the new book is about my belief that uh, business and life are like art and that, you know, uh, done badly, they're bad art, done well, it's good art. Uh, you know, that when we're trying to live or work by somebody else's standards we, we basically take a paint by numbers kit you know which isn't evil but it's not a Picasso you know a paint by numbers of Picasso is not Picasso right. <laughs> so Picasso is Picasso because Picasso put his heart and soul into it and he went off the uh, beaten path in ways that were true to him that caught a lot of flack of course at the time but turned out to be quite remarkable and I think that's true in in business too. I mean, I think that the, the businesses, whether it's small or large, isn't the issue. Whether it's in America or you know in South Africa or somewhere in Asia, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I think the great organizations, the ones that people say are cool or that they got a buzz about them or that they're drawn to, are you know either to shop or to follow or whatever. Just like musicians are, you know, or artists are the ones that are really doing something special that's true to them and. Uh, Thelonious Monk uh, once said that a genius is a man most like himself. And, I, and, and Robert Henry, who uh, wrote a book in 1924 or 23 called The Art Spirit, and really was a. It was uh, May of, 20, of 23. Oh, very good. So anyway, he, he talked about how, you know, when you're when a, when a person's true to themselves that you can feel that energy in their painting because that's what he taught. But I think it's true in anything. And, you know, so I think that's what ink or whoever picks up on. And I think customers are drawn to, just in life, I mean, we're drawn to it. When you meet somebody in your life that's, you know, got that buzz of energy, you know, even if you're not their best friend, you still sort of want to be around them. And I, I think that's what makes it go. I've had I've had uh, hosted business meetings here in Ann Arbor, and these out of town clients of mine, when they get in, they say, "Hey, make sure we go to Zingerman's," and, it's, and they, they're just talking about the deli. They're not even yeah. talking about the roadhouse. Yep. What's so the deli is cool, but it's just amazing that that little tiny shop yeah. essentially has caught their attention from the other side of the country. Yeah. Well, I think again, when you're you know, most people are doing stuff, and I guess I would say in our lives, we're trained to do what we're supposed to do. And, they're, you know, when it doesn't make it evil, but it's not that interesting. And I think, you know, it's easy to say and hard to do. But when you're living in a way personally or collectively that's really unique and true to yourself that and, and your product is good, because it's not it could be unique, but you have a bad sandwich, uh, you know, then you, you really make a... a an energetic presence, uh, as Denise Tavin, I would say, that is appealing to other people. Yeah, that's right. So your, your new book is Zingerman's Guide to Good Leading, Part yep. 4, yep. and uh, a lapsed anarchist yep. approach to the power of beliefs in business. Yep. Start, tell us first about the, the lapsed anarchist. Oh, what do you mean okay. by that? Well, so I studied the anarchists when I was in school. Uh, we have the largest anarchist collection in the country is in the Graduate Library at U of M. Uh, and I was always really drawn to it, but I, you know, you know, in school, whatever, uh, you know. And then when I started to manage in the restaurant kitchens, you know, a few years later, I sort of tried leaving everybody alone to do the right thing, and my naive belief that would just sort of work out, and it didn't work out because they didn't just do the right thing on their own. 
And uh, and then, so for years, I would always say I was a lapsed anarchist because I still believed in it, but I didn't practice. And then, just coincidentally, when I was working on part one of the business book, which is uh, Building a Great Business, uh, I happened to get asked, I think it's got to be eight years ago now, I uh, got asked to speak at the Jewish Studies Department. And when I, you know, it was about a year in advance, and I didn't really worry about it. But anyway, the uh, Deborah Dash Moore, who runs the department, titled the talk for me Rye Bread and Anarchism because I had just uh, written this like 10, 12,000 word essay on the history of Jewish rye bread that she had uh, read and uh, and she knew that I'd studied the anarchists so I thought, oh, you know, it's cute, we'll run with it. And then when I got to be like two months out, I was like, you know, these are, uh, like at business conferences, nobody knows anything about anarchists, so it just <laughs> sort of scares them a little, but other yeah. than that, it doesn't mean much. But yeah, I started to get to about two months out and I thought, you know, these are like history professors, they actually know who all these people were. I don't want to embarrass myself if I have to talk about anarchism, I better do some homework again because I haven't looked at these books in forever. And uh, I uh, got out all my old books and I started to reread stuff that I hadn't looked at in years and it kind of blew me away because, uh, you know, although I, I the, the biggest piece of anarchism overtly was always getting rid of government, which is not my issue. I don't really care one way or the other. But beneath that, I had sort of lost conscious, uh, mindful awareness, I guess, of, of a lot of these other things that were a huge piece of it that drew me to it in the first place. You know, focus on living a life that's true to you, not on what society tells you to do. Uh, free choice, respecting every individual. Uh, how if people don't believe in their work, they don't do good work how when you involve people in running, designing their work, you get better outcomes. And, you know, and I'm reading all this and I'm like, well, A, half of this is how we already run our business, even though I hadn't thought about it. And B, this is now called progressive business. <laughs> and, you know, it just kind of shocked me, like the parallels between, you know, whatever Deming or whoever writing about self-managed work teams mm -hmm. and you know, Emma Goldman or whatever, writing about workers being involved in running the, their work. And I thought, wow, this is mind-blowing. So I started to do what history majors know how to do, uh, which is read more books and read more. <laughs> and it really, uh, A, it reinforced a lot of what we were doing, and B, it gave me some good new uh, enhanced perspectives about the ineffectiveness of hierarchy, uh, about, you know, some of the stuff that's in the beliefs book. I mean, all those kind of things. So, uh uh, was pretty mind blowing. So anyway, that's how I got in there. So I'm less and less lapsed as the years go by. Uh, there's uh, anarchists in all the business books. Uh, part two has a whole essay on it, and then the new book has a, a whole essay with even more thoughts on it. So that was a long answer, but there you go. No, it's interesting. The, so the what's the premise about the power of beliefs part? Well, so the the I guess I should just add on the anarchist stuff. So the average human thinks that anarchism is about chaos and people throwing rocks and it's completely <laughs> not about that at all uh, and it's not about disorganization to the contrary it's actually very aligned with organization it's just about the idea that people should be able to freely choose how to organize what they're doing not have it imposed from the outside so so i mean it sounds crazy but i really never thought about the role of beliefs in our lives. Uh, so when I say beliefs, I'm not really talking about the three sort of things that everybody daily discusses about uh, beliefs, politics, religion, or sports. Not that those are bad things, but that's a, I'm not really focused on that. This is more about 
uh, what we believe about the people we work with, what we believe about the marketplace, what we believe about ourselves as leaders, uh, what we believe about our products, what we believe about people doing podcasts, you know, whatever it might be, and, and starting to realize that the beliefs that we have are basically creating the reality that we're living in. And uh, what happened for me was uh, we had a work team that was working on an organization-wide quality issue. And long story short, I, you know, all the things that we usually do with, with work teams, and we do pretty well with them, were in place. We had, you know, a good diverse mix of people. We had some partners who were, you know, equity owners. We had some good seniority. We had some frontline people. They wrote a vision, which is a big piece of our work, as you know. You know, all the things that should have worked, and it just wouldn't work. And I was so frustrated that I couldn't get it to work. And around the time that I was dealing with my frustration, I happened to read uh, Bob and Judith Wright's book, Transformed. And uh, in there, they talked about this self-fulfilling belief cycle, which I had, Bob didn't make up, he says, but he can't remember who taught it to him anyway. <laughs> so basically, the way it works, and it's obviously in the book visually, but uh, basically, we all have beliefs. So we have beliefs, like I said, about what a meeting should be. We have beliefs about what pay rates, you know, anything. So if you have a belief as a leader that, let's say, training is a bad idea, you will take action based on your beliefs. So if you believe training is a bad idea and you're the CEO of a company, the obvious action is you'll do as little training as you absolutely have to. Based on your action, the people who work with you will form their own beliefs. So if the CEO believes training is a waste of time, he or she does almost no training, the frontline people start to form beliefs. Well, what do they believe? They start to believe they don't matter. They start to believe the job is a dead end. <laughs> they start to believe their work doesn't matter, etc. Based on that, they take action. Well, if you believe you don't matter, there's no future, <laughs> at least no positive future, and no one cares about your own growth, what kind of work do you do? Not very good. And the CEO says, it's a good thing we didn't waste any time on training. Look how bad these employees are. <laughs> Right. Uh, ironically, if you just change that initial belief and you have a CEO who he or she believes training is a great idea, they take the opposite action. They put a lot of time and energy into training. The people who work there start to believe, hey, I matter. This is kind of cool. They really believe in me. Wow, this is great. I'm learning all this stuff. Based on that, what kind of work do they do? Really good work. Imperfect, but really good. And the CEO goes, man, I love this training. Let's do even more. The, the funny thing is, I mean, everybody laughs when I tell that story, but the funny thing is it's the exact same employee base. All, all that's changing is the belief of the leader. And this is going on in our lives throughout. So that sort of light bulb went off for me when I connected that with the work group because I realized the problem wasn't all the other things. The problem was the people on the work group didn't believe in the work that I had asked them to do, even though they agreed to do it, and they didn't really believe in each other. Well, if you don't believe that the work group's work is worthwhile, what kind of action do you take? Minimal. What do the other people start to believe? It's not going to make any headway. When they don't believe it's going to make headway, they do very little, and round and round you go, and no progress gets made. Once that light bulb went off, I started to realize that beliefs were everywhere. My metaphor in the book is that they're the root system of our lives because everything that comes up above ground obviously is directly correlated to the root system, but you can't see it. 
Yeah. What you see are the actions which come up above. But every action you take, every action every one of your listeners takes, every action I take is based on belief. Most of us just don't know that we have the belief, but they are. So, you know, with all that in mind, then I started to realize that uh, unlike your height or my hair color or whatever, well, I guess you could dye your hair, but unlike, you know, genetically based things, beliefs are actually learned and that we can choose the belief with that cycle in mind that we want to create the outcomes that we want to create. So if you want to have a more positive culture, it needs to start with a belief in people. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of got me going, and again, I started studying and working on it and studying and working on it. It turned into a 600-page book. Yeah, but it's been a longer huge, than your huge, other books. Well, I learned a lot. <laughs> I cut a lot out, too, so it's not like it all in there. But, uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's just making people aware of their beliefs because, uh, you know, Maggie, uh, the partner at Zing Train, when she talks about training stuff, she talks about unconscious competence, which is where you can... You're so good at something, you can, she always says, you can do it in your sleep. You know, driving is an obvious one for most of us who aren't 16 anymore. Uh, You don't really pay attention, you just sort of get in and do it. And it sort of made me realize that most of the world, me included, until I did this book, were unconsciously competent about our own beliefs. We can do them in our sleep. So you see somebody you don't like, you don't even think about reacting, you just, oh God, here comes that jerk again. Right? Yeah. So now here we go. You think he's a jerk. How's your energy? Not very good. <laughs> What's he start to believe about you? You hate him. <laughs> what kind of action do they take? They, they argue with you or they avoid you or whatever, and you go, see, I knew they were a jerk. By changing that awareness, you start to realize you can choose a belief. If you want to have a good relationship with this other guy, it's got to start with positive beliefs. So I don't know if this is making sense, but this yeah. is what the... So the, that sort of anarchist principle of freedom of choice, mm-hmm. you're saying in the book that we all, each of us and our yep. people we lead yep. have the choice, can yep. choose which beliefs we're going to Absolutely. internalize. Absolutely. And, and most of us, you know, we learn our beliefs growing up from our families, from the press, from people we admire in sports or music or whatever. We learn it from people we respect, whether it's a teacher or a minister or a colleague or a kid on the playground I mean but we you know we pick up these beliefs and so you know we're all raised with it like this is what a real man does this is what a good relationship is supposed to be like this is what a job should be like you know whatever and uh, I'm not saying those beliefs are wrong it's just we don't even know we have them right so you know in the food world it's quite common people have never had a good cup of coffee right we're sitting in the coffee well if you only had bad coffee you think that's fine it's only once you start to experience something different that you realize that there's actually a choice that you could make that would enhance the quality of your life. And sometimes that good cup of coffee doesn't taste good to people who don't know better. No, it's absolutely. <laughs> totally, man. And so, and so one piece of the belief cycle that I didn't mention is bet- we, between our beliefs and our actions, there's a little filter. And we all know it or not, we filter information to fit our beliefs. Okay, yeah. so... Uh, if you think coffee, it's, you know, fancy coffee's overpriced and you've only had Folgers and I bring you a really great, you know, press pot of, you know, whatever, Sumatra coffee from here and you're already skeptical, you're not going to like it. Uh, you know, if I frame it differently and I say, well, the first time you have good coffee when you're used to this other, it might taste kind of strong, but to stick with it, there's a positive future out there. All of a sudden, 
you start to let in new information. So how, how do you translate that type of issue over to beliefs, let's say, in the people that you're leading? Well, so one of the core pieces of the book is that I started to, as I mentally worked on all this, to break beliefs out into three broad categories, negative beliefs, neutral beliefs, and positive beliefs. And uh, if beliefs are the root system, here's the obvious. Negative beliefs create negative outcomes. Neutral beliefs don't do much, and positive beliefs create positive outcomes. And I started to realize the obvious. You can't get positive outcomes from negative beliefs. Most people in the world have had fairly negative to neutral experiences of jobs. Uh, I'd say much of the country believes work is a negative thing that they have to tolerate. And that, you know, me or you or some of your listeners are kind of workaholics who were aberrations and that really work is a drag. And if you're successful, you never have to work another day in your life. But negative beliefs lead to negative outcomes. So if you get in a job, you hire people into a job and they have negative beliefs about work, follow the cycle. They're going to do as little work as they have to because they've been trained that success means you don't have to work then the boss is going to think, oh, they don't really care about the job, so they start to push them out, and then they go, see, I knew work sucks. Look how bad they treated me. So it's starting to realize that we have a chance, just like parents have a chance with little kids to influence their beliefs. We have a meaningful chance to, to, to change the beliefs of the people that we hire and help shape them, and it's ultimately their own choice, but most of them don't even know that there's an option, like you said. So I think that's a really big piece. And then, you know, also if if there's people that we're hiring that don't share our beliefs and aren't open to changing theirs, it doesn't make them bad people. And I'm not even saying that they're wrong, but you know, like here, uh, spirit of generosity, which you mentioned earlier is a big piece of our approach. We believe in it. If you don't, it doesn't make you a bad person, but you're going to always have trouble working here because we're taking actions organizationally based on a belief that the spirit of generosity is a positive thing. If you come from a mindset, you know, which certainly many companies do on Wall Street or whatever, where it's like, grab mine before I get screwed, you're going to be culturally at odds with the rest of the organization. Well, if we can find that out during an interview process, we could save you and us a lot of aggravation. So I could see two types of people reading the book. One is someone who wants to take a very intentional, introspective look Mm -hmm. at their own beliefs as a leader and the beliefs that drive the company. Yep. And sort of start thinking through those. Mm-hmm. The other would be someone who recognizes a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would just, and, and this morning I was talking to a business leader who was had a problem with employees not following their known processes for mm-hmm. unfollow. Yeah, They've which we all problems. we all have some struggle with that. Yeah. But yeah, just like if we just follow the processes, and his first reaction was that. Got, obviously got some loser employees, probably time to let them go. But as we talked more, he did say, but you know, on safety processes, they are 100% correct right. and compliant. Right. They believe in it. Right. And so obviously they can do it. They can follow the rules and check the boxes and yep. everything. So why not on the, on the quality? And he said, well, I, I, I asked a few, I kind of defy why process with them. And he basically at some point he said, well, because they don't believe it. Right. So um, how does how does the, the two types of leaders, maybe someone who's 
where do they start if they want to take the intentional or if, they, if they're reacting to a problem? Like right. Problem? Well, the, the first thing is what you're talking about, which is to become at least aware of what the issues are and of what your beliefs are and how it's impacting. So, you know, we've all struggled with those sorts of things. But, I mean, if you're if you have the belief that you have loser employees, not an uncommon belief, follow the cycle. If you believe they're losers, how much work do you invest in them? Not that much. Yeah. You distance from them because who wants to hang out with losers, right? So we, we don't really talk to them. You know, what do they start to believe? There's no future. They're disengaged. Work quality suffers. And we go, see, I, could, I knew they were losers. I don't know what to do. But the problem probably isn't them. <laughs> and I think it's just what you said. If they don't, you know, if we don't believe, whether it's you, me, or anybody else, if we don't believe in something, we're not going to do it at all. Uh, and when we're doing something because somebody else told us to, this is anarchism 101, it's not, <laughs> not going to work well. You know, people will do enough to get by. Uh, and, and so, you know, then you start to look at other beliefs, like maybe if I converse with them about what's going on and how the processes are impacting them, they might start to change their beliefs about it. Uh, you know, why, and having a conversation, five whys or whatever, like, why? Well, what, what is it about the safety processes that gets you guys so jazzed? And then starting to draw the correlation between the two. So, yeah, absolutely. And then I think a third group of readers also is just, you know, I write, I write them for business audiences, but the truth is it's true for your life at large. So uh, a lot of people have put this stuff to work just in their relationships at home or whatever. So, tell us a bit about if, if someone's they, they've uh, picked up the book and, and read and liked liked some of the ideas in there. Yeah. Um, a next step would be some of the the, the training that, programs that you offer yeah. through Zing Train. Yep. Tell us about those. Yep. Uh, well, there's also there's exercises in the books so that people can put stuff to work on their own too. But uh, Zing Train is our training business. Uh, we have ten different businesses. They're all different, unique Zingerman's businesses. But here in town, Zing Train is one of them. And we basically teach our approaches to work. Uh, so uh, I think we have 10 different two-day seminars now. So one on leadership, one on our visioning process, one on open book management, uh, one on managing ourselves where we get into a little bit of this. Uh, and, you know, four or five others, customer service, uh, our HR practices, etc. So, yeah, people come from all over, uh, literally all over the world. Uh, to, to go to them, usually it's you know more likely upper level managers or owners, uh, but we get all walks of organizational life. So every industry you can imagine, uh, high tech, universities, uh, manufacturing, education, uh, retail, obviously food service, obviously, but really all walks of life, all ages, all ethnicities, all everything, and uh, and and. Great, great. And then we, we also, uh, as you were asking about, we go uh, sometimes off-site to teach uh, to organizations. I'm going to Indiana to teach to a actually large multinational uh, medical device company uh, in uh, Indiana that we've done a lot of work with. Uh, so, yeah, all over. I was in Slovakia last year teaching. and So usually these are... Two day, you have two days seminars yeah. and then four hour workshops. Yeah, so the the two days are sort of the core of it, but we started to do the four hour workshops for people who don't want a whole, you know, uh, meal. They just want a snack, I guess, so to speak, in their food 
context. Uh, those typically are more local people because it's a long way to come for just a four hour. But people from Toledo like you or from around Ann Arbor area or other parts of Michigan, we get quite a few of those too. So yeah, they're sort of segments pulled out of the longer seminar for people who just want a shorter snippet. So typically people will come to uh, more often the two-day seminar. Yeah. And then they may uh, may ask you guys to actually go to them with some yep. personalized customized yep. training to take it back to whole department if you yeah know. like we uh i teach a couple of the different ones i'm teaching managing ourselves next week and uh, i teach the visioning seminar and the zingerman's experience which is sort of a overview on culture building and engagement and all those good buzzwords uh and uh i think we were let's see it was in the spring i taught the zingerman's experience seminar actually uh two guys who heard me speak in uh at the Open Book Management Conference, Gathering of Games. Then they came to the seminar, and then now two people from Zing Train are going down. They run a gasket company in Atlanta and a couple other businesses, and two people from Zing Train are going down there to teach to them. So, you know, the seminars are, I think, a great way, like we talked about, for leaders to come here, but obviously they're not going to bring all 300 of their employees to Ann Arbor. Uh, it would be cool if they did, but I understand <laughs> that they're not. So at that point, it becomes more cost-effective to have somebody from Zing Train come to them. But I, I do think, you know, like you and I were talking about earlier, I mean, I think it's good for people who don't really know us, you know, to sort of get the context that we're working in and, you know, deal with real-life employees and real-life product. I think it adds a lot to the understanding of what's going on. And I, uh, there's a lot of power in it. I mean, I was meeting with somebody this morning at the Roadhouse who, uh, she actually works for a large food service company. I won't say the name, but isn't that happy working there? Uh, she met a good customer of ours at her church. The good customer, uh, who actually is quoted in the new book, uh, said, "You know, you got to really, you know, you're doing you, your your inspiration and your values are so great, but you're stuck in this corporate setting that's really not you're not liking it. It's not helping you. Why don't you come and meet?" Ari, so she emailed me would I have coffee with him because I believe everybody has something to offer. Then I go, sure, let's have coffee. So have coffee. I didn't really know what they wanted to talk about. but So she introduces me, and so she's interested in coming, potentially coming to work here. She's a manager over there, but she's not very happy. And, uh, you know, so part of what I believe is true is that everybody that works here has good perspectives on what's going on. So there were two people standing by the table. One is a server who... Justin is in her mid-40s, late 40s. She's been with us three years, I think, you know, but probably 25, 30 years in food service. And the other one's like a 17-year-old hostess who's been there four months. So I was like, hey, you guys, you know, this woman's thinking of coming to work here. What should she know about it? So the younger woman's like, God, I'm really nervous, you know. And I said, well, you know, she'll go first. So, she, you know, she gave a glowing super nice i mean i don't know what they're gonna say you know? <laughs> uh anyway so the old the the woman who's got more experience you know said i've worked in food for decades and you know this is the only place i ever worked where it's so collaborative and where i really believe in everything i'm doing and then you know everybody's in it together i mean it was just super nice and then the, you know 17 year old which by the way people have very negative beliefs about young people's work ethic you know, she goes, oh, I'm so nervous. I'm like, you're fine. Just tell her what you think. She goes, well, I just, you know, there's just dignity to what we do. 
you made me cry. Yeah. She was so profound, you know, and what she said, she was like, there's just, there's just so much dignity in what we do. Like, we really believe in it, and I would never work anywhere where they were selling food that mistreated animals or that didn't care about the environment or didn't care about the people. And, like, when I come to work here, I really believe in what I'm doing, and we're all part, you know, and I'm like, 17, man, she's giving a business talk. And, <laughs> you know, so those things don't happen. Like, if I go speak to your company and wherever, which is good, but I can tell you those stories, but I think it's even more powerful when you're looking at a 17-year-old who's still in high school yeah. speaking intelligently about business and about life in a way that is hard to convey, you know. And just to realize that Zing Train is not just this corporate training company no, that a bunch right. of uh, white-collar people... No, we have real employees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, people quit and... Glasses drop and break, and products don't show up, and we make mistakes. And you know, we got all the same problems everybody listening to this thing has. It's really just more about trying to find more constructive ways to deal with them and more holistic solutions. Uh, you know, just like with medicine, speaking of doctors, you know, you can have the quick invasive medicine, which might kind of fix it in the moment, but I think it's more effective if you can treat it holistically and deal with it in a way that honors the integrity of the whole system, not just that sort of cuts out the problem and sometimes you need to do that but not always yeah agreed yeah. well the book is uh zingerman's guide to good leading part four yeah. a lapsed anarchist approach to the power beliefs in business yeah all right where can people get their hands on this book yeah so I, I should say so we're we're a little off the grid it probably won't shock people <laughs> listen to this not on thing. amazon well, we didn't. I didn't really like the big publishing world when I did a. I did a book with a, a big publisher, and it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't a whole lot of fun. In hindsight, different values and different beliefs, right? And uh, so we went back to doing our own. So we do all the design here. Uh, we have them printed in Ann Arbor, uh, so 10, 15 minutes from where we're sitting right now. And we're not really on Amazon except through resellers, so it's actually more expensive on Amazon. <laughs> Uh, if they're if they're local to here, they can just come in as they're sitting right over there. Uh, all our businesses have them. But if they're out of town, uh, they can go on zingtrain.com. Uh, they can see the business seminars there too, but the books are on there. And uh, we're happy to ship them anywhere. We ship them to Europe or Australia or whatever. How about folks who just want to stay uh, connected to what you're doing? You're not really like a... Uh, link, don't have a big LinkedIn presence or anything. Well, like there's that, a you, Zing Train has a e news uh, which they can sign up for, and then all the businesses have their own that they could sign up for. Zingermans.com will give them mail order because we do, aside from all this, we do sell food uh, and we ship food all over the place right now. We're ramping big time up for the annual holiday push. Um, and then they're welcome to email me too. It's just Ari at Zingermans.com, and I'm happy to answer any questions that I can. So, Ari, what else is in the book that you want to? people would be interested to know about yeah so there's there's a lot on beliefs obviously uh one one essay is i mean the core essay of course is some of the stuff we covered but there's also another one that's on my realization that you know given that negative beliefs lead to negative outcomes that if you want to have a healthy long-term sustainable organization it has to be based on positive beliefs mm -hmm. <laughs> uh there's another one about alignment you know which is kind of what we touched on before which is just my realization that uh, you know, many people in the business world have visions or values that they aspire to, but they're unconsciously, they have beliefs that are out of alignment with what they're trying to create. If you think of what happens when you drive your car when it's out of alignment, you can do it, but it's difficult. It's very inefficient and very ineffective. So 
the alignment stuff is just helping people realize, you know, the importance of it and how to focus on that. And then, of course, there's a recipe for changing our beliefs. Because, to your point earlier, once you choose a different one, it's not the instantaneous, you know, order from the waitress. You actually have to make some, do some work to make it happen. Uh, beyond that, then, there's a couple essays on hope in the workplace. Again, something else I had really never really thought about uh, up until the last few years. Uh, but it turns out, of course, people with low hope, don't do good work. Uh, so it turns out that we, you and I, leaders, can actively either unintentionally crush hope, which is happening all over the world every day, or we can actively create hope. And once you start to realize how much, like when you study hope, and I'm not the world's expert, but I spent quite a bit of time reading and studying, if you look at the statistics, it's like better health, lower sick days, lower turnover, uh, more emotional resilience, better performance in school, better performance in sports, not correlated to natural ability, but is all tied to hope. So when I started to realize if we weren't actively developing hope in the people that work here, we were making a big mistake because we're paying them the same, whether they have low hope or high hope. And when you say hope, how is that different from, let's say, optimism? Well, optimism is sort of a general belief that good things will happen but I, in, in this case I'm talking about more of a grounded hope uh, and so what that it, it comes down to having a clear sense of where you're headed uh, so not just if I just sit here long enough something will show up <laughs> this isn't evil but this is more like if we have a good conversation I mean it's what I believe if we have a good conversation you're going to benefit six or eight or 60 of your listeners are going to learn from it. A few of them might buy the book. One of them might email me. We might end up with a long-term dialogue and relationship that helps everybody. And, you know, good things will come of it, right? So, uh, but then it also has, a, the other piece of it is that there's actual uh, intentionality around action steps to actually make what you want happen. So optimism could be like, if I sit here long enough, good things will happen. But this is more like, well, I got to show up on time to meet with you. We have to have an intelligent conversation. You have to edit the, the tape. <laughs> you have to figure out how to get it on the air. So it's it's really much more meaningfully grounded as opposed to just sort of wishful thinking, which isn't inherently evil, but doesn't actually create a whole lot. <laughs> so, you know, when employees have no sense of a better future, they lose hope. When employees have a sense that you might have a better future, but they don't, they lose hope. When employees wish for a better future but have no idea what to do to get there, they lose hope. Uh, so this is really about, you know, how do we get there? And I ended up designing a, a called six-pointed hope star because my belief metaphor was root system, but my hope metaphor is the sun because people grow, grow towards the hope. It's mm. like plants grow towards the hope. And if there's no sun, plants don't grow, period, yeah. done. And uh, when people are hopeless, I mean, Basically, clinical depression is the physical inability to have hope. And if you look at what happens to people who are clinically depressed, where just getting out of bed becomes an enormous issue, that's really what's going on. And there's many employees in the workplace who aren't that depressed, but they're kind of depressed. And when they're depressed, they don't go and do great work. I mean, and so it's really teaching people how to manage this six-pointed hope star and go out and you know, think you can do it all day long and generate a lot of hope. There's another essay on spirit of generosity, which is, again, a big piece of our belief system here. Uh, and so I don't mean just donations. That's sort of the, the easy one in a way. Uh, but this is more about giving people second chances, about 
given them the benefit of the doubt about sharing social capital, you know, access to your banker, uh, you know, just things that people don't really think about. But when you start to do those things, good things come from it. The, the metaphor follows with spirit gener- generosity is water. Again, if plants have totally dry soil and soil is the culture in the metaphor, then they don't grow. So, And then uh, from there, it just finishes with... Uh, a couple essays on practical ways that in hindsight I realized we were for years building positive beliefs, building hope, and teaching generosity. Our visioning process, which I'd written about earlier, but sort of new learnings about it, uh, our uh, one plus one work, which is where we uh, involve people in uh, a second piece of work in running the organization so that they're not just working on the coffee counter, but they're actually on a work group that might be working on this statement of beliefs that we're doing or whatever. So it's starting to connect them in different ways, giving them more diversity in their work experience, tapping different parts of their intellectual and emotional potential. So that's a good way to do it. And then the, the other one is about our uh, new staff orientation class, which Paul and I still teach, even though we have 700 employees, uh, and why that, in hindsight, I can see how it's built positive, changed people's beliefs from the minute they get into the job here. So, and then it closes out with the epilogue, which is uh, my, my ever stronger belief that business is like art and that uh, well done, it's good art, and badly done, it's bad art. But that uh, the more we approach our lives as if we're artists or musicians or poets, that we're going to experience a lot more. I think that uh, if you hang around with a musician, they hear things differently. If you hang around with an artist, they notice the colors in a way that you and I might miss. And I think most people are going through life missing 90% of what's around Mm -hmm. them. you're missing out on the beauty and the joy. And uh, Matisse, the artist, said there's always flowers for those who choose to see them. And I think this is true. So it's really just encouraging people to be artful about what they do in their lives. Well, we've been talking with Ari Weinzweig about power, beliefs, and business. And obviously one of the big messages that comes through in the book is that uh, is that you believe that business can be a positive yeah. to- tool for yep. good in, in, in society. But Ari, thanks for joining oh, us. Oh, thank you. My leader. pleasure. My pleasure. Happy to do more. And again, my email is ari at zingermans.com and zingtrain.com. I'll get them to the books and the website and the seminars. So. Fantastic. Terrific. Thank you so much. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide the information and links that Ari mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.